Despite the number of witnesses who came forward and the number of witnesses who participated in the trial, Dude's defense counsel was able to create a reasonable doubt, ending a very challenging five-year journey with the final verdict of not guilty. That was in June of 2019. It then took me another two very challenging years to be able to legally say, I came forward and I lost. This is Peaches, a series of essays that are dedicated to everything that I learned while I was dedicating my life to never being raped again. My name is Marika Freund, and this is Chapter One, The Handbook. And just as a trigger warning before we begin, the subject matter of rape and sexual abuse do come up in this chapter. So if that's not for you right now, you do you. And hopefully we'll get together at another time. Oh my goodness, I can't believe we're here. I have been talking about launching this podcast for years, actual years, and it's taken me so long and there have been so many iterations that I think, I don't know, people probably either gave up on me or just thought that this was um, a project I was working on to escape real life, but here we go. Here we go. And this is, this is me here on the internet, letting you know about how I feel about those seven plus years of my life that I spent in what I like to refer to as the ultimate hell rodeo. Um, so let's go. Now, Okay, this might be a really redundant thing for me to say, but coming forward is really shitty. It's really, really awful. And once the publication ban was finally lifted on my name, and don't worry, I'm going to explain what that is in a little bit. Um, the most challenging part of my getting to use my voice freely again was figuring out exactly where mine started and where the opinions of others began. Um, like I didn't know if I was saying what I was saying because I had read something on social media or if it's because of what I was hearing from the people around me. I really, I really wanted to get clear for myself on what was my opinion what did I actually have to say about what I went through? The thing is coming out of a forced silence after being on the front lines concerning all things me too for that long. Um, well, let's just say that finally getting to speak openly without criminal consequences 
um, especially when it's about something as sticky as rape culture, it isn't so much like riding a bike, especially when everyone already has their own very personal, very deeply rooted opinions on the subject matter. But um, I can say um, without an iota of a doubt that um, these are my opinions. This is what I have to say. And this is exactly the way I want to say it. Once I started learning for myself what my voice actually sounded like, um, I was faced with another challenge, which was having too much to say. Um, it was kind of like the best way I can describe it actually is if I was sitting in the middle of a room surrounded by this endless clump of knotted yarn. And every time I began to untangle one knot, I was led to another and then another and then another. And the more clear that I got about what it was that I felt and what it was that I wanted to say, oh, the more difficult it became really to say anything that felt um, concise, um, like a concise nugget that I could wrap up in roughly 10 pages. So there's there's been that challenge. Um, and another really big challenge that I met was that once I started speaking with people who really actually wanted to listen to my story, I found myself having to stop and explain things constantly. For example, how the legal system in Canada actually works. And I'm not even a lawyer. Um, I'm a professionally trained actor with seven plus years of experience in business development. So getting peaches off of its feet has been one of the most challenging things I've ever done because for anyone to actually understand what it is that I went through, they need a handbook. And the problem is that I had to do the whole thing without one. For me, everything was so ungoogleable. Um, and so I was really, um, I was really up the creek without a paddle. And uh, if I haven't exposed just how Canadian I am, then um, then I think that last statement just um, just did that for us. Until the publication ban on my name was lifted, my life it did. It felt like a prison sentence in which I had to secretly seek out advice on what felt like the black market for feminism. This was amplified once the trial was finally over because I had to treat the reclaiming of um, what I assumed were my basic human rights as a covert revolution. And it sucked big time. My life would have been so much easier if the information I needed was Googleable, or if I could have even watched a show like historical fiction and been inspired by a character on TV who was going through what I was going through. The cherry on top of my struggle to get peaches off of its feet is that 
so much of what I went through was so absurd that a lot of my story really seems unbelievable. Um, it was unbelievably awful. Um, I mean, I know we're definitely still coming out of an era that spans many millennia where people didn't believe the victim of assault. So there's that level of disbelief that we're, I think we're still not think I know we're still working against, but when my story and the stories I would come back to my therapist with when they would make her jaw drop. Um, well, let's just say that the amount of work um, that I knew was going to be involved in helping people genuinely understand what it is that I went through, I knew that it was going to be a lot. One thing that I mention in one of my earlier posts titled Bullseye, um, is that I believe we need to be responsible for what it is that we're putting out there and that we need to consider how it might affect the people consuming it. And I'm bringing this up right now because I just, I don't think that many people knew or realized that about 72 hours after the ban on my name was finally lifted, I just, I collapsed like a house of cards. Um, I was not okay. And I didn't want to create from this place. Um, what happened to me once that ban was finally lifted was that I just didn't recognize my life. When I looked around at everything I built for myself during those seven plus years in, um, in the hell rodeo, uh, from this new position of combined safety and freedom, I sort of questioned every single decision I had made since that fateful night on June 21st, 2014, um, the night that catapulted me into said hell rodeo. Um, and it's because the person who I know myself to be um, she finally emerged then and she would not have made so many decisions based on a deep sense of worthlessness and so much fear. But that's what coming forward does to people. Um, okay, so before this gets too dramatic... Um, in terms of me not trusting any of the decisions that I made, I made a lot of really great decisions um, while I was in the hell rodeo. For example, choosing to marry my husband was a really great decision because he's the best. Um, and another great decision was to leave Canada um, because it was really excellent for my mental health to end up somewhere that I had a completely blank slate. And with this blank slate, I was able to see for myself what kind of person I really was without the influence of 
other people who made me feel like a loser for not being able to handle everything that I was forced to live through. I really got to see um, that I was that person who emerged 72 hours later asking, what the fuck? And I love her. So just to clarify, looking back, I can see that a good handful of my decisions during the Hell Rodeo were actually really excellent decisions. I had also done and accomplished some really wonderful, incredible things. Um, but I do have to say that that period in my life felt more like a charitable donation to the fight for women's rights instead of an empowering exercise dedicated to my personal safety. Um, and I thought that it coming forward was going to be the latter based on everything I was reading on social media at the time. So all that to say, when you're finally off the battlefield, it, it takes a hot minute to learn how to breathe and stop living in survival mode. And what I realized um, 72 hours after the ban was lifted was that um, I was still living in survival mode, even though I really wholeheartedly believed that I was above the situation and that I had moved on. I was working with life coaches. I had a therapist. I was going to be a okay when the ban was lifted. Um, but instead I was met with a huge level of shock and a lot of awe at the realization of just how not okay I was. But if my intro music didn't already say this for me, I'm really good now, which is why I was finally able to get peaches off of its feet. If I'm being completely honest with you though, while a huge part of me is burgeoning on this humanitarian task of telling my story because I do, I want with every piece of my being for things to be easier for the next woman. I also want to shift people's perspective of me. I just had to get to a point where I didn't feel desperate about it anymore. Um, being desperate to not be seen as a loser isn't hot. Um, I No, for real though, I wouldn't even want to listen to me if I was that thirsty to be liked. And I really want to be a positive force in helping to shift the mainstream perspective on rape culture just into something a bit more, I don't know, whole. That's the best word I have for it. I just, I don't think that the majority of material out there that's available on the subject matter is entirely accessible. I'm going to explain what I mean by accessible in a little bit, but what I will say about creating material that I believe is accessible is that I can't really give a heck about what you think about me. The problem though, is that I do give a heck because if you still think I'm a loser for what I went through, then that means you think other women are losers too. And that doesn't sit well with me. So I am embracing the fact that I feel like a loser. 
And I'm just choosing to be really open about it because maybe it's this feeling that needs to be more accessible too. And maybe within my vain attempt to try to regain some shreds of respect from, oh, well, anyone back in Canada, really, I'll be able to help you understand a bit more about what women actually go through after they get raped. And maybe that'll help other women who have gone through or are dealing with the hell rodeo that is coming forward feel more like winners. But I don't know, maybe I'm the only one who still feels like the number one social reject. Before I even dive into my story or talk about anything that I went through, I want to give you a handbook. Yay! Uh, so that you know and understand how the legal system in Canada works. Um, the legal terms and processes I'm going to explain are going to come up a bunch of times through the following chapters. So it's important that you understand what they are and what role they play in the process of coming forward if you're going to stay with me for the entirety of this series. In Canada, my case went all the way to the Superior Court of Justice in Toronto, Ontario. The Superior Court of Justice in Toronto is a provincial court that deals with the most serious criminal offenses. In Canada, these serious criminal offenses are referred to as indictable offenses. If the accused is found guilty of an indictable offense, their punishment generally results in imprisonment. The accused, just in case it's not super crystal clear, is the person who is being held accountable for their actions. So in the case that I was a part of, the accused party was the dude who threw me into said hell rodeo that fateful night in June of 2014. I also want to mention now that I'm never going to refer to that dude by his real name. And instead, I'm always going to be referring to him as dude. While I have never experienced respect from him, especially when it comes to boundaries, I don't believe in an eye for an eye. I do believe, however, that people are capable of great and beautiful change, and I have witnessed this in men before. So I would like to give him the space and the opportunity to live a life that's more gentle and kind. The other thing is that this is my story and not his. He doesn't need any more attention than he's already received for those seven plus years. And I think it's a little bit more satisfying that he holds no more power in my story. But all of that being said, if I do find out that he has hurt another woman since the trial, I won't be so chivalrous about his identity. And that's by no means a threat. It's just a matter of safety. The Superior Court of Justice 
is not the same as federal court. However, while a superior court of justice runs on provincial funding and handles indictable offenses, the judges who oversee the cases within a superior court of justice are paid by the federal government. So in my case, while it was tried in a provincial superior court of justice, it was overseen by a federal judge. Before making it to the Superior Court of Justice in Toronto, I had to go through a preliminary hearing. A preliminary hearing is like a mini trial that occurs before a criminal trial, in which a judge within a regular provincial court decides if there is enough viable evidence to justify how much money and resources it's going to cost the government to hold a criminal trial within the Superior Court of Justice. Preliminary hearings are only held for indictable offenses. And the prosecutor, also known as a Crown Attorney, only presents the most important parts of the evidence at the hearing. Usually, it's having the key witness retell their story. After the Crown Attorney has the key witness tell their story, the key witness gets cross-examined by the defense counsel that represents the accused. So in the preliminary hearing I was a part of, I had to retell the events of June 21st, 2014, and then was cross-examined by Dude's lawyer afterwards, who was attempting to find holes in my story. As I just mentioned... Crown attorneys are the prosecutors within the Canadian legal system, and they represent the Crown in criminal cases within Canada. What this means is that the trial I was a part of wholly belonged to the Crown. What's important to remember about this is that it wasn't me who took Dude all the way to the Superior Court of Justice to be tried in front of a federal judge. It was the Crown who did this. This means there was enough evidence brought forward to the police by multiple different people around the time I initially came forward. This means that the Toronto police determined for themselves that Dude was guilty of what happened that night in 2014. When Dude turned himself in after the police completed their investigation, I was asked if I would participate in their case as the key witness. A key witness is the main witness, and in rape trials, it's generally the victim. So in the trial that was dedicated to my own rape, in a case that belonged to the Crown, I was actually a volunteer whose story and experience became crucial evidence. Having the victim act as a key witness means that the police and the Crown are the ones wholly responsible for the trial. Taking responsibility away from the victim is a very good thing because should the accused be found not guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, for example, like dude was found within the trial dedicated to what happened to me, the victim is protected from being sued 
by the now former accused for wrongful accusation, like we so often see in high-profile American cases. The Canadian legal system runs on a system called due process. And this means that even though the police may decide for themselves that the accused is guilty because an unquestionable amount of evidence was brought forward, the accused is actually innocent until proven guilty in a superior court of justice. In legal systems that operate on the foundations of due process, you cannot imprison an accused person if there is even a sliver of reasonable doubt. What this means is that even if there is only a 1% chance that the accused did not commit the crime they're on trial for, they cannot be found guilty of said crime because there is still a chance albeit a very small one, that they're innocent. And putting an innocent person in jail is a very bad thing. Lastly, and I promised, I promised in the beginning I would get to this, a publication ban boiled down makes it illegal for anyone to use the key witness's name in association with the trial they're participating in. It was a tactic that soon became common practice around the 1980s to encourage women to come forward as they protect the key witness from unwanted public attention or further shaming. The ban gives her the promise of confidentiality and anonymity due to how public knowledge of her rape could, and usually would, cripple her social status an ability to move ahead in life. Unfortunately, even with the birth of the Me Too movement, rape is still the most underreported crime in Canada, as social stigmas attached to speaking up about it still very much exist. So, publication bans are a tool designed to protect the victim, and only the victim, One thing that's important to keep in mind is that trials in Canada are open to the public. This means that journalists are able to write about the happenings within them. An active publication ban stops the key witness's name and any other piece of information that could identify her from being printed in the media in the event that a journalist does decide to dedicate an article to the trial they are participating in. And because naming the accused often exposes the key witness, the accused's identity also gets protected by sheer proximity. So because of publication bans, the accused person is free to continue living in the real world without facing any of the socially debilitating consequences of their seedy behavior. It's still just us ladies who get to carry that burden. Ooh, 
I don't know about you, but that was a lot for me. Um, <laughs> uh, I want to take a little break um, from that section of the handbook to actually talk about something really important. And that's that I would like to acknowledge that rape doesn't only happen to women. However, just because this is how I identify, my pronouns are she and her. And because my gender has played a huge role in how things have played out for me, and because I want to take responsibility for my own story, I will be speaking and continuing to speak from the perspective of the cisgender female. I would also like to acknowledge that I am very aware of my privilege as a white woman who was employed as a director of business development every time I took the stand or appeared in front of a judge. So even though what I went through was outrageously horrible, I know that anyone from the BIPOC community, the LGBTQ2S plus community, and the working class would face and still do face so many more hurdles and unfair biases than I did. So all of these things considered, I was in a good position, if we can even call it that. Because publication bans became such common practice in sexual assault trials, many of the women whose cases make it all the way to the Superior Court of Justice like me, aren't told about them until they've already been put in motion. This means that having a publication ban placed on our names isn't presented to us as a choice, even though it's supposed to be, as publication bans are issued after making an appeal to a judge. If it had been up to me, I never would have requested one, and this is for two reasons. The first reason is that I had been told by people in our once shared community that with Dude, there were other victims and that I wasn't the only woman to receive the series of disturbing text messages that resulted in my coming forward in 2017, two years after the initial incident. My hope was that if these other women knew what was going on with me in the courtroom, that they might feel brave enough to come forward too. Of course, only if they wanted to and felt safe enough doing it. The second reason is that I wanted people to finally know what was going on with me as I was mentally exhausted from having to stay silent for so long and tired of people treating me like a loser because of what happened to me. Even though placing a publication ban on a key witness's name is a genuinely earnest gesture meant to shield us from further harm, in addition to not being asked if we want one or not, very important information about what the ban actually entails often gets omitted in briefings with us. The important information I'm referring to 
is the fact that it's not just illegal for journalists to use our name within the media. It's illegal for everyone else to use our names in print too. And this includes us. That means it becomes a crime for a key witness to tell her own story too if a ban is not lifted once the trial is over. I cannot actually confirm that the negligence of delivering this important information happened to every single woman who came forward because on the black market for feminism, I've only been in touch with a good handful of other women who have successfully lifted the bans on their names. However, these sisters within the revolution all went through the same thing I did. Knowing what this handful of us went through with regards to publication bans tells me many things about the Canadian judicial system, but the one thing I would like to home in on at this particular point in time is this, that Crown attorneys are not given enough time or resources to properly address each case that lands on their desk. I don't believe that the disarray I experienced within the legal system is something that occurred because of deliberate sloppiness, but rather is a symptom of people who are trying their best to help fix a huge problem with minimal resources while simultaneously drowning in an unsustainable workload. What is most heartbreaking to me about the disarray, however, is that this chaos within the legal system benefits the defense as it makes it much easier to find or create a reasonable doubt to support a not guilty plea. It was on June 3rd, 2019, that Dude was found not guilty beyond a reasonable doubt on two indictable offenses. It wasn't until October 5th, 2021, that the publication ban on my name was finally lifted and it stopped being a crime for me to speak about what I went through. A conclusion you may have been able to come to on your own is that I didn't actually know it was a crime for me to tell my story. Uh, With the utmost sincerity, I thought the ban was lifted once the trial was over because of a verbal promise my Crown attorney made to me. So when I finally learned about what a publication ban fully entailed and that there was still one active on my name, I found myself living through the most difficult two years of my existence on this planet. Uh, I'm not going to talk about the insane lengths I had to go to in order to lift the ban on my name, because that's something I cover in chapter two. But I will say that none of the information that I needed to help me lift the ban on my name was available to me readily. And every time I would call a helpline, the call I made would end with, I'm so sorry, but I don't think I can help you. 
The kind of stuff that was available to me, though, um, the things I could find while I was Googling publication bans, um, was basically the same as putting um, some mild cold symptoms into WebMD uh, before, before COVID. And if you haven't consulted the internet about a light cough and then diagnosed yourself with terminal lung cancer at least once in your life, then I don't know if you've really lived. <laughs> but because this was my experience, while I was trying to lift the ban on my name, for most of those two years, while I was working to have it lifted, I was terrified and convinced that I was going to wind up with a criminal conviction, aka society's version of terminal cancer, for starting to tell my story through the work that I was already engaging in. Because everything that was out there was so inaccessible. And because the people who were supposed to be able to help me kept telling me that they couldn't. I'm just starting to realize that maybe the music I picked isn't actually as upbeat as I thought it was. Um, but whatever, I like it. Um, what a fun time for me to be alive, hey? Wow, publication pans. I bet you didn't really know that much about them, right? I mean, people in the legal system didn't even know about them, so hey Anyway, I said I would explain what I meant about creating more accessible material surrounding the topic of rape culture. When I talk about accessible material, I'm talking about accessible in terms, yes, of being able to find information online, but information that's not written in legalese or so clinically that it causes anyone to self-diagnose themselves with, as I called it, society's version of terminal cancer. Um, the information that's out there shouldn't make women who are dealing with a publication ban feel more fucked. But more than that, I want this subject matter to be easier to engage with. I want it to feel like there's more of a human element to it. I want it to be relatable. I, I just don't want it to feel so heavy. I mean, it is heavy, but our approach to it doesn't have to be. This is for two reasons. The first is that it's this heaviness that makes people who don't have to deal with a publication ban not want to engage with the subject matter. And personally, I don't really blame them because that last section of the podcast was even hard for me to listen to. Okay, the second reason is is directly related to the first. And it's very much steeped in my personal experience in the Hell Rodeo. And that is that because most people don't want to engage with the subject matter because it's sticky and it's heavy and it's not fun, that meant that people didn't want to engage with me. And this is why I always felt like a worthless loser when I was going through the seven plus year hell rodeo. 
It's so important to me that there's room not just for lightness, but for laughter. And I'm talking genuine bellyache laughter when we're looking at the horrifying subject of rape culture. Not because it's a funny subject, because it's not a funny subject. And I'm not saying that we laugh when a woman gets raped. That is and always will be horrifying. I'm saying that we need to be able to laugh about how insane it is that so much of what I went through after I was raped was completely acceptable. If we're capable of laughing about that, then it means that we're comfortable with the subject matter. And when we're comfortable with the subject matter, then it doesn't hold power over us. And when the subject matter stops holding power over us is when we can start to experience even more meaningful change. I get it though. We all have genitals. The majority of us feel sexual feelings. And sex means something really different to each and every single one of us. Because of this, it's really tough not to have our own deeply rooted beliefs when it comes to the subject of rape and the culture around it. But laughter has the power to unhinge sticky things. And lightness has the power to heal and make us feel safe. And if anyone has the authority to say, you're allowed to laugh about this, it's me. I've really earned it. I invested the time and the money. And believe you me, it was a lot of money in order to have the equivalent of what feels like an honorary PhD in the dismantling of rape culture. And the reason I get so heated about this is because I felt like I was expected to treat coming forward as an extracurricular activity. My safety should not have been my hobby. Your safety, the safety of all of our women, should not be treated like it's a hobby. This is work. And every single thing we do to help move the needle, even just a millimeter, is really meaningful work. And I'm so tired from so much of what I went through. And all I want is for someone to say thank you for your work and then to be able to laugh with them about how fucked up so much of what I went through was. That's it. And I don't think it's a lot to ask for. But I know that it's not going to happen until you feel safe enough to engage with the material. It's not completely lost on me that that was pretty intense coming from someone who wants you to be able to laugh at the subject matter. But I really hope that it's coming through, that it's not about the rape itself. It's about everything around it and about having the ability to not let this subject matter hold power over us. If there's really only one goal for me in my work with Peaches, is that it's not to make information more accessible, even though I want to do that. And it's not so that I can stop feeling like a loser, even though that would be amazing. What's the biggest factor for me 
is that I want people to feel safe trying to help. I don't believe in cancel culture because to me, it's creating a stagnation in our forward movement. We really need people to want to try and help. And we also need to understand that a lot of people are going to fuck up while trying. But I would much rather see people feeling safe enough to try and to fuck up than experiencing no forward momentum at all. Lastly, what I want to say as a disclaimer about peaches and my approach to telling my story is that I'm an artist. Peaches is an expression of my soul after I went through some incredibly difficult years and then was legally banned from sharing my story. While it's absolutely a collection of essays designed to help shift the mindset around rape culture, it's also something I created to support historical fiction. The television pilot I wrote about my experience in the real world once the trial was over, actually I've named this series Um, after one of the main characters in the show. If you've seen the image that I use for this chapter, it's actually a picture of me and Peaches. So that's, that's who this series is named after. So those things being said, while I am an avid humanitarian, and I really, I would, I would so love to hear from you, Um, I just need you to understand that I'm not going to be able to help you directly if you're in the muck right now. I really hope I inspire you to keep going through my, through my work, but I am just by no means a certified life coach, a registered therapist or a practicing lawyer. Um, and to be honest, I think it would be very dangerous and irresponsible of me to sell my services as a mentor in that respect. So if you're currently in the muck and I'm so sorry if you are, because I really know what it is to be in it. I'm not going to be able to personally hold your hand on your journey. Um, especially because as an artist, I do intend to ruffle some feathers And in my own time off, I will likely either be venting to my fabulous girlfriends or working with my own team of registered professionals just so that I can stay grounded enough to keep going with my work. So thank you in advance for understanding that I'm just another person working her butt off and doing her very best to help move the needle a millimeter. And I'm probably going to fuck up sometimes. Actually, I'm probably going to fuck up a lot. I am also incredibly certain a lot of people are going to think I'm a weirdo or still think I'm a loser for doing what I'm doing, um, especially after being the loser in a rape trial. But at least this time, I'm a loser on my own accord. There is one more term that I want to cover that I didn't earlier, and that's rape culture. I didn't realize it wasn't an obvious term to everyone until after one of my stand-up sets. Um, Quickly, yes, I tell my story in comedy clubs and people are still booking me for shows after hearing it. Anyway, 
A couple from Toronto approached me afterwards and asked me what rape culture meant because they had no idea what it was. And they had a difficult time following my set because of it. They really couldn't quite grasp the concept. Um, To them, the words rape and culture didn't seem like they should go together because rape is icky and culture is something to be glorified. Now, While I wholeheartedly agree with their sentiment around the uncomfortable pairing of words, I explained what rape culture was to them. And for the sake of ease within this chapter, I plugged rape culture definition into Google instead of defining it on my own terms like I did for that couple. And what comes up immediately is the definition by the Oxford Dictionary, which is a society or environment whose prevailing social attitudes have the effect of normalizing or trivializing sexual assault and abuse. The couple thanked me for clarifying rape culture for them and then thanked me for pursuing my hobby uh, while I died a little bit inside because I take my comedy very seriously. I was grateful to know that they felt safe enough approaching me with the subject matter and that they felt safe enough to admit that they had no idea about what's actually going on for a lot of women. They were really sweet about it, actually. So I guess people are already thanking me for my work in their own awkward kind of way. So... I'll talk about what it's like to be a loser in a rape trial in the next chapter. For now, I'm just going to take comfort in the fact that some Canadians were interested in what I had to say. It's a pretty big win for me. Especially since I'm going at this without a handbook. Thank you so much for being with me up until the end. And if you enjoyed this podcast and if you'd like to hear more, I highly suggest visiting my website, www.markafroin.com slash support. There you can subscribe to the newsletter or you can help contribute to the work. Thanks again. I so appreciate you and wish you so many bright and beautiful moments navigating this incredibly intense planet that we live on.